<coughs> okay, okay, so two seconds pause and I shall get started. Martin, by the way, my husband told me this morning that my voice is quite sexy when I'm when I have a cold. Yeah, I agree. Oh, thank you. I, I should get sick more often. Yeah, and stay there. No, oh, thank you. Hello friends and welcome back. Welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast, The RPG Room, the podcast in which I'm not going to tell you what we do because it's so self-explanatory that I think I've said it enough times, although probably in the future I will say it again. I am Paco Garcia, your apparently, apparently sexy sounding host. This has not been tested. There's no evidence to prove that it is sexy. <laughs> well, you tell me. You tell me. We that. need a control subject here. Well, my husband says that I sound sexy when I have a cold, and you agreed. That's, see, that's biased data right there. But you agreed. This doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny. You agreed. Uh, I didn't agree. I don't agree with your husband because I'm not coming from the same exact perspective your husband is. is. I'm just saying, yeah, I prefer your voice when you're sick, too. Well, there you go. That means I sound sexier and you moist. I think it's awkward. Yeah, it does sound moist. I appreciate that it sounds moist. I think it sounds really awkward for me to tell you that your voice is sexy. Why? You're such a repressed person. I'm not repressed. <laughs> I, I, I keep my flavor separated. I keep my ingredients Ooh. on the plate. When I'm eating my meal, I keep everything separated. I eat my mashed potatoes before I eat my steak. You don't mix everything? I'm one of those kind of people, so I do the same thing in the real world. You don't know how little of my life people see online. I am. I keep my online persona and the podcast persona and the my real-life persona very different and separated. Interesting. Yeah. You are a very compartmentalized sort of person. I am, because I just think it's uncomfortable, some of the things that people choose to bring to the public light. Okay. Does really light the word I want to use here? Bring into the public arena. I think the things that people talk about and 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 uh, divulge are awkward at times. Yeah, but I, I like that because I'm a psychotherapist. So that makes you're a me... psychotherapist because you yeah. want to see what makes people tick. Yeah, exactly. I like that. I, I do enjoy it. Talking about what makes people tick, uh, we're going to be talking today, and that's nothing to do with what makes people tick, but nevertheless, um, today we're going to be talking about something that you brought up about five minutes ago, and I absolutely loved the idea. We're going to be talking about orphan characters, but we yeah, don't mean archetypes, yeah, yeah. We don't mean that they don't have parents. I mean, they don't may not have parents, but they may or may not have parents. That's irrelevant to what the orphan means in the context of storytelling. If you're choosing to write or play, and we're going to talk about it in role playing context. If you're role playing an orphan character, you're role playing somebody that is divorced of past relationships or relationships relevant to the game you're playing and it's such a cliched trope that i don't think that modern modern gamers are much better at this but i think people that have been playing traditional role-playing games like DD, savage world shadowrun all those kind of things vampire they tend to make characters who are orphans because it's easier for them hmm. because if they want to change their character in hmm. any way it doesn't impact anybody else. And they could say, oh, you know what? I was going to be 14, but my character is now 24. Well, you just, if your character has a relationship uh, with anybody else at the table or more than one person at the table, 
you're now uh, impacting all of their characters because of how they know you and in what context they know you. Uh, absolutely. But I think for me, it's quite important to have some sort of past relationship, at least two or three of them when I create a yeah. character, uh, because relationships shape the way we are. I mean, it's not the only thing that shapes us as human beings or as any other being for the matter, because we are uh, relational beings, creatures. You know, right. we, we need relationships. Otherwise, we, we cannot really exist. Or definitely, we cannot exist healthily. So for me to have, uh, okay, so you are a character who, you know, um, uh, yeah, barbarian who's uh, going out there into adventuring, trying to find goblins to kill. Why? Oh, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, that sounds right. very. And we covered this topic twice before in that regard, right? We t when we talked to Janelle, that's a, the entire point of the central casting books mm -hmm. was to give some depth to characters before they showed up for their first session, and we talked about this in the mental health yep. episode. The kind of people who turn to gaming for I don't know what to say closure but some sort of um, connection connectivity to the world around them without connecting fully without making that commitment if you if you look at somebody like James Bond who's an absolute James Bond's a douchebag character oh, if you yeah. analyze James Bond he's a dick yes and if you think that he's a hero then you're obsessed with the idea of the guy that doesn't have a past, doesn't have any connections and he's worried about and do whatever the fuck he wants. And it's that doing whatever you want mentality that really drives the orphan character because you want to be able to be in a situation where you do things without consequences. And that's the most appetizing and delicious part of role-playing games when you're 14, right? But when you're an adult and you still are playing role-playing games because you want to be able to do whatever you want, then why are you turning to role-playing games for that? What is it that you're missing that you want to be able to play a character that can kill outright without repercussions? Oh, I think it's just a matter of childishness. I think, though, the character of James <coughs> Bond is, is a good example, although I have to say also in the last um, movie, um, the last two movies, in fact, they did try to address that a little bit, um, when they did, oh, what was the previous movie? Not Spectre, the one before that. Quantum of Solace? No, that was the first, the second. Oh, the other one, um, Skyfire? Sky, um, Skyfall. Skyfall? That thing was absolute garbage, but go on. Well, you know, you say that was garbage, but that was the only movie that's ever gone into James Bond's past. You know, that. Yeah, that... Right. No, and I'm. That part of it was okay, but yes. the way it ended and the the villain was just, I don't know. The, I, the villain could have been so much better. Oh, well, everything about that movie could have been um, a, a, lot, a lot better, even though I think Javier Bardem did, did a very good job in there. Uh, I like him, but yeah. yeah the, the, but the, the character itself, uh, not, not the acting. The acting was very good, and I think Javier Bardem did what he could with it. Uh, but I think the character could have been a lot, lot, much, much better developed. But I think that they did show that he had a couple of things about James Bond that were a genuine surprise for some people and made some people feel uncomfortable. Like when James uh, suggested that he has had some sexual encounters with other men, right? Um, when when he was being held captive. And also, they tried to go into his past a little bit, as it's they hint. There is a past in there, 
but it is quite murky and therefore James doesn't really want to go into it. So he's actually running away from the past. Right. So they're saying, yes, there were some relationships. There, there was a past. There was a reason why he's the man he is today. But we don't want to tell you about it. And, there, and there's something interesting about that. You can have James Bond's past and not become James Bond the character. Absolutely. You can come from an orphan background and then be obsessed with trying to make your own family or trying to build new relationships. And when uh, Carl Jung talks about the orphan archetype, when he breaks down the 12 common archetypes, he, he reveals that the orphan is obsessed with trying to fit in, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the way the orphan is written in modern, uh, modern fiction or how we play the orphan when we sit down and we play – role-playing game and inevitably somebody at the table wants to be that guy right the mysterious stranger from outside the context of the story or the world who doesn't fit in and doesn't have any relationships somebody at the table always wants to play that guy yes. and i think i think if you want to be that guy you still need to define at least one relationship at the table in order to justify being there well, uh, and to define why do you want to be so mysterious? You know, what happened in the yeah. past that makes you want to be this this mysterious? You know, do you just want to be mysterious because you think that's, that's being cool? Yeah, I, I think at some level it feeds the ego. But I think at the other level, it it gives me the it gives me all the ingredients I need to to play the character that has no consequences when he does things or she does things. Yeah, which is bollocks. I think that, that is complete another bollocks. I just don't, don't get it. And, you know, I think it is possible to play the orphan character as long as, as you described earlier, you are actually trying to fit in. You're trying to develop the relationships that you didn't have right. during the, the, the previous part of your life or in your past. And you actually make a proactive effort to, to, to fit in and to stop being an orphan. Because no orphan ever want to be enough an orphan. That's, that's just, just fact. Right. And again, I, I, when people are hearing the word orphan, I hope they're not hearing devoid of parents. Mm -hmm. Because you can be an orphan character and still have parents. Orphan is a generic descriptor for the archetype that ha is divorced of relationships within the context of the story. Yes. I mean, that's another example as well as James Bond's. Before uh, we started recording, you were mentioning Han Solo. Yeah. Um, which, which yeah, Han Solo is an orphan character for a very long time, and even then he only develops um, the relationship with Leia. He really never gets as close with Luke as you would want him to, considering what they've been through. Yeah, and, and to be honest, even, even Luke... Is, is pretty much an orphan character because the only relationship he has is not really that much of a relationship. It's very much forced upon him with, right. um, with his aunt and uncle. I think a lot of that has to do with Lucas as a writer, though, and less to do with anything else. You mean I, him? I think Luke? Lucas doesn't really have strong relationships with people, and therefore he doesn't know how to write them. So, yeah, you're basically saying he's a lousy writer. Well, he, I mean, we already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and we should do, we really, we talk about Star Wars almost every single time because it's the common language. We really need to do an episode that's just about Star Wars and talk about what works about it and what doesn't. Okay. Because there's so many things about it that I can't stand and they're great examples of bad examples. Yep. Definitely. Okay, that's that's one for the future listeners. So, so okay. So, how do we stop the orphan character syndrome? 
I don't have an answer to how we stop it. Just stop it. Just try and play something else. Right. Right? Establish relationships with two people at the table, right? Uh, every game I make has relationship tables to give you a uh, an ingredient or a, a cue or a prompt to get you started so you know how you're related to somebody at the table. And it, you can pull any of those charts out of any one of my protocols and just use it in your, the game you're playing and force everybody to establish at least one relationship with somebody else. You know, I'm gonna, and that's what I do in all of my games. I'm, I'm going to go even further than that. I'm going to say you have to write your um, background, your character background. And if that character background, and it only has to be maybe, I don't know, 100 words. It doesn't have to be very long. But if that character background doesn't name or mentions at least three people or creatures that you were close to before you start playing your character, uh, your character is incomplete. It's not wrong, it's just incomplete. I'm not trying to tell people how to play their games, but I'm trying to tell people that your character is incomplete. I'm a huge fan, if you're going to sit down and play a campaign, of the first session being character creation. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you're just playing a one-shot, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But if you're going to play a campaign... The first, at least maybe the first half of the session needs to be character creation. So everybody has input as to what's going on. Yeah, they, and if your GM is flexible enough, they can say, hey, what if we start here? What if we are all meeting here? What if we play a couple of scenes of where we were a year before today? That kind of thing. There's all the kinds of ground, things that you can be doing. Uh, we could talk all day long about the options of how to do your first session so that everybody has... Um, some impact or some weight to what you're doing, um, there's the place for you to develop those relationships, right? There's the place for you to make sure your character isn't an orphan and is grounded to what is going on. Yes. And also borrow from other games. You know, even if you're playing D&D, &D, <clears throat> pardon me, for example, to have the um, pillar of sanity and pillar of stability uh, traits from Trail of Cthulhu, it's oh a, sure, it's a great thing to have, right? You know, you you have somebody or something, but especially somebody who grounds you so much, who really keeps you sane and stable and in check, right? Uh, that it's somebody that you can think about when you are under duress. So right. even even in a game like D and D, I mean, I I would love the idea of saying right. I, I'm facing this mega foe. I have three hit points left. You know, I, I think I don't want to die because I have, uh, you know, my, uh, I don't know, disabled grandmother who needs me back in the village. And that gives me a bit of strength to actually, I right. don't know, get, gain advantage. Right. You know, that sort of thing. I think that gives so much richness and depth to, to characters. Um, it's great. So those kind, those are anchors. In, in game design, those are anchors. Yeah. And it's a, kind of a modern idea. And one of the things that the indie movement did was to create these anchors that are essentially different ways of doing hit points. So your grandmother becomes a hit point, so, so to speak, in, in a horrible way of speaking, because your relationship with her affects your ability to affects your resources within a game right mm -hmm. so that is 
actually a great way of doing it that everybody has that kind of anchor or battery, if you will, of in their reservoir that at a certain point they have to dip into it in order to keep going in the game. And if something bad happens as a result, your relationship with your, your grandmother is severed, right? There, there has to be consequences for using that. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it, it does. It does make sense. Uh, although I, I don't... I think that probably in a game like D and D, that probably would be a little bit too far to take it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. But in in a, in a game like um, you know, Trail of Cthulhu, the game that it was made for, yeah, I, I think that would make perfect sense. I, I think uh, that is yeah. I, I think the thing about D and D, and maybe we should do a positive episode about D and D one of these times. The thing about D and D is that it can be so many different things. That if you wanted to play a non uh, a non combat heavy game campaign of D&D and it was more social or it was more greedy and it was a lot of time spent on the road looking for something you could have those moments where yeah I don't talk to my grandmother anymore after what happened at blah 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 you could be role playing that moment of something that happened five sessions ago you see what I'm saying yeah where you had to dip into that reservoir and now you know your relationship you don't really go and talk to your grandmother anymore because you know how do you explain to her that you put your life at peril yeah, yeah, but just, just for some glory. So you can't face her right now, and I think that that in and of itself writes uh, writes a great thread for a single character that you can get out of D anD D if you play D anD D in that way instead of just jumping from combat to combat. Which I think is what most people expect D anD D to be. I think D anD D in particular more than more even more than Pathfinder. Uh, but it gets a very bad rep for being um, a skirmish game with, uh, you know, social encounters in between. You know, the uh, social encounters of their role-playing is there just to add continuity to to the combat scenes. And I think that is because people is has they, they have expected D&D to be that. And therefore, they are really wasting the chance of role-playing within D&D, uh, which is a pity. Uh, because I think the indie has more than rich enough worlds to yeah, be absolutely. able to have some very very interesting role playing adventures, not not just skirmish or dungeon crawling adventures. But I think we are conditioned to think that that's what D and D should be for, uh, and it's such a massive mistake. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think D and D is such a such a booby trap. It's such a landmine, right? To to even get started because so many people just expect so many different things from it. There's a common language we all understand about D&D and the beauty of D&D is that everybody knows the rules because especially if you play any older editions, they were so brain dead simple that they didn't get the rules didn't get in the way of doing anything you you wanted to do because you'd already mastered the rules. Really? I I honestly think that about first and second edition. Yeah, they were brain dead simple. You know, I third, I third is a mess. But Ooh, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think that second edition was any more difficult and, oh, sorry, or easier than than first edition. I mean, I, I started with AD and D. Um, we, but the whole. But how long did you play AD and D first, and then AD and D second? How many years did you play those games? Because that's the only thing that was available. Which is my, was where I'm getting at um, is that. You had mastered those rules because that's all there was. So you didn't have to waste time worrying about every single feat tree on your character sheet in order to feel effective. 
so you could play the game and enjoy the game and just show up for a session of D&D. You can't play Pathfinder or 3rd Edition without worrying about your feet tree and what magic item drop you're going to get at what level in order for your character to feel effective doing the things that it does. So you're always so obsessed with the math in those games that, yeah, they are jump from combat to combat with some investigation in between or some social interaction in between. That is what they've become out of necessity for what the consumer wants their characters to be able to do. And if you, that's one of the strengths of the OSR model is that the game isn't about mechanics but about the tool in front of you that is useful when you need it to be useful and thrown away when you don't need it to be hindering you. And so those role-playing moments in an OSR game are stronger because I don't have to worry about a fucking feet tree. You know, I get the feeling, and hopefully none of my friends is listening to these, that I have some <laughs> some seriously, seriously uh, shit GMs when I was playing AD&D because I never, ever had that feeling. I always felt playing AD&D that it was very, very much a maths exercise. And without trying to get some magic armor or some magic weapons of sorts or some sort of books, spell books or scrolls or whatever, my character would never ever be effective and he would never be able to survive ever because everything was so bloody lethal. But when you were playing first edition, whatever magic item you got or whatever magic scroll you got, you cherished. You took it and you cherished it and didn't have to fit in with your design paradigm for your character where you saw that character at 20th level nobody did with with old D&D what they are now doing with Pathfinder which is making a list giving it to the GM and saying these are the magic items I need at these levels and I'm not making that up by the way the listeners who are listening who play Pathfinder or are familiar with Pathfinder know exactly what I'm talking about players now hand their GM's list and tell them these are the magic items I want at these levels because it fits my build well, um, I have never seen that in particular, to be honest. I, I have seen and I have done the typical, you know, I, I want to be a dragon rider. So, you know, it would be great to have my own little dragon by level 15. Sure. But that's it. I, I have never really seen anybody saying, oh, I, I need to have a, a Vorpal sword plus three by the time I'm level five. And I need to fa have some sort of... Uh, armor of daylight by the time I am level 7. I, I, I've never seen that happening. Yeah, it, it happens. It happens quite a bit now. Wow. It is It is more common than than games where that doesn't exist. I would say the majority of, especially Pathfinder and 4th edition D&D, the majority of games do exactly that. That is bizarre. Really, it's something, maybe it's me. <clears throat> Sorry, but I have it, it, yeah, it might be the environments that you're playing in. I don't play with those kind of people, but I'm aware that it exists because of my circle of friends and because you know I I'm in the hobby, right? I work in the in the industry, so I know what designers are having to deal with when they're talking about problems of well, how am I going to write this section of this book because the players are just going to be looking for the magic item powers. Well, well, no, never, never would have suspected that because I, I absolutely love getting anything magical uh, when I'm playing D&D or Pathfinder. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just the joy that, you know, I have these little boots that don't leave any footprints. That's amazing. Love it. I, and I don't care if my character needs it or not. I will just make the most of it because it's is what I have, and why not? 
I, I think this is one of the reasons why people are romanticizing the the OSR movement, despite you know the, the some of the elements that we've already discussed in the past that are distasteful. Um, the people that romanticize the OSR movement are romanticizing the way that we gamed back then more than the games themselves. They're romanticizing the idea that, oh, you just found a scroll of web. Mm. Holy crap, I only have three spells in my spell book. I'm taking that son of a bitch. It's going in my book. Yeah. It, web may not be my favorite spell, but it's going in my book now because it's another option available to my wizard. Absolutely. Which I didn't have before. A plus one dagger. Holy shit. Give that to the thief. He's got nothing. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that, that that kind of gaming has its place simply because it was it was the thrill, the surprise of something simple, um, sort of enervating, not enervating, energizing your character and energizing your interest in your character. And you see, I just cannot imagine playing any other way. Can you imagine a Pathfinder game where somebody gets handed a plus one dagger at third level when they're expecting a plus two frosting axe? Right, frosting returning axe at third level. Can you imagine that that session? How fast it would deteriorate in arguments about numbers of plus one dagger. I can buy these at the bazaar. Blah 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 for a hundred gold. You're so stupid. What are you doing? I don't. I don't because know. all that information is now in the hands of the players, where it didn't used to be. And and you know, I I cannot imagine that because I have never, ever even thought about it. You know, if if I had said to my my GM when I was playing Pathfinder, if I had said to Neil. Oh, I want to have this character. He will say, well, this thing at this level. He will say, well, screw you. you, you, you you'll have what you get. And right. that's it. Right. And one, one house rule he, he made <laughs> was you can never, ever buy magical stuff. Right. Because everybody cherishes and treasures their magical stuff. So why, why you're not going to sell yours. Why should you, you know, I mean, you might be able to sell yours, but why should anybody else do it? So no, magical is what you find. That's it. And I love that. And I'm going to say something really dangerous, right? I think that a lot of what Pathfinder does is cater to the mentalities that came out of Shadowrun. Okay. The kind of people that were playing Shadowrun when it first came out were people that wanted to go to equipment lists, and I, I bring up gun porn all the time, right? You go to equipment lists, you go to the gun porn, you pick exactly what it is that you want off of these equipment lists because all of the information is available to everybody. And magic items didn't used to be that way in first and second edition, right? The GM knew what the magic items were and what they did, and you had to go somewhere to figure out what they did. And then all of a sudden, third edition and Pathfinder came out, and now magic items appear in the player's handbook. That information is available. All that stuff is available to players, the things they want to be able to create and do. And so they're making it part of their builds so that magic items become, instead of becoming equipment, they become a facet of the character. Just the way a panther cannon in Shadowrun is not an, a piece of equipment. It's who my character is. Well, and that I can understand to some degree. Okay, with Pathfinder, I'm going to defend it. Um, for a second, I'm, I'm not attacking it. I'm, I'm merely uh, no, no. I understand. I understand. I, I'm observing, right? I'm giving you a. I don't want to say scholarly, but I'm giving you an in-depth analysis of what I consider the changes going on in the fantasy milieu. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I know. But of I, I know. third and three point five and Pathfinder. I know, but I need, I need, I need to, to defend the reason why it happens. And is that because it's just one book? So when, when you're buying the, the Pathfinder book, you get everything in there, both for players and the GM. Right. Whereas in D&D, &D, that's different because you still have three books. 
Right. So, okay, although in, in fifth edition, the player's handbook is theoretically all you need to play. So right. they need to include enough. So that would explain why they have to include some magical items. Um, but uh, with Pathfinder, I find it normal. I think it's just naughty that people read the whole thing if they are not going to direct the game. That's just ridiculous. However, and and to actually defend people who want to get some magical items, I think that's not a bad idea to have as a quest. You know, I, I want to own a, this high-level magical item uh, because it's my quest because, I don't know, this is where we stop being orphans. You know, I think... Um, a character can be an orphan for not having a relationship with another character, but right. what about having a relationship with, for example, an heirloom that has been lost? Right, right. So maybe that's your relationship, you know? This sword that my father lost after the battle of blah, 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 and now I want to recover it. And, and right. that's, that's my quest. That's why I want to have this sword by level 15, for example, whatever. And so... Imagine a campaign. Imagine a GM sits down and writes a campaign, and he focuses. He makes one character ten percent more important to the story than anybody else, and it's your character mm-hmm. in this instance, Paco. And you want to go find that sword. And the very first session is you at the tavern, as a PC, trying to hire people to go on this quest. And now your relationships to all these people is defined by the money you're going to pay them when that sword is retrieved. Okay. Imagine that campaign for a moment how how different it is from what people are used to because now the pc is the wizard with the map at the tavern sending people on a quest but secondly that now all of your relationships are defined defined immediately as soon as the game starts by the fact that they all want the same thing well i think actually that would be quite helpful i i yeah i do too i'm just asking you to imagine that i thought it was a good idea yes but um you know we're going to talk about cliches eventually on the show this is an example of breaking a cliche, right? Mm-hmm. But still playing D&D the way everybody's used to playing it. The only change is that Paco's character is just a little bit more important because he needs to stay alive to get that sword. Yes. And can you imagine if that later on, it so happened that the sword, it actually doesn't exist anymore. Right. What happens right. to that relationship? I mean, what was changed from that moment when they are hired to the moment when they discover that the sword doesn't exist anymore? Does the group split and go away? Or have they found some sort of common ground to continue the adventure? Or is there something else that they want to pursue? What happens then when that character loses importance? Right. Wow, that could be... And that's a great session right there, too. Yeah, that would be a great campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, we should be writing campaigns for people on the show. Yeah. Except just making this up out of our asses, so I don't know how good these would be in... An implementation. Well, you know, I I can bring you a tool within two seconds. I can I just can go and get it. That within five minutes would give us the most amazing plots you can imagine. All shall, right. Shall we do that as an experiment? Sure. Okay. What be, is the tool? Just so I. Uh, be right back. Let me get it. All right. This is weird, audience members. Yeah. Paco has now left. I am sitting here alone. Well, I was going to pause it and then go, but if you yeah, want to... Yeah, but I think it's funnier if I just ramble. Oh, okay, grumble, grumble. I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm checking out stickers now on on Facebook because I'm tired of the monkey scratching his ear with a banana. What's that, Paco? You don't know what stickers I'm talking about? 
Well, that's because you're using the old edition of stickers. You're still using 3.0. You need to install 3.15. No, no, you're wrong. No, you're always wrong. I should pour myself some more iced tea. I didn't know he was going to be gone this long. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> It'll be fun for you to listen to what I said when you're going through and doing the editing. Oh, well, yes. Um, that means I have to listen to it because normally, unless there's something that happened during the episode, I don't listen to it while I'm doing the editing. Yeah. I just I just go for it. Anyway, these things... If you leave it the way it is, we're going to lose listeners. <laughs> <laughs> If we keep losing listeners at this rate, well, I don't know. Well, I don't, we probably don't have any more listeners by now, but that's fine. Yeah. I don't care. We right. still have Gareth and Leonard. We'll never lose them. That's true. Uh, okay. Oh, and Carissa Dapp. She's wonderful. I, I like her so much. I like Carissa, too. I didn't know she listened to the show. Yeah, me neither. Um, but I I think she's such an amazing human being. I like her. Right, yeah, okay. She's a friend of mine. She, uh, I she? met her through the $1 Kickstarter I did, and we became friends after that. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay, so the um, the tool I'm going to use called StoryForge. This right. is something that came out in Kickstarter. StoryForge uh, cards? Yes. Oh. Uh, in 2012. Okay. And I have always found it's a great, great, great way of... Uh, you know, starting adventures. Uh, there are lots and, um, you know, there's uh, little um, diagrams of how to set up. It's basically a tarot-sized set of cards, and each card has something written on it that will help you create the story. And it brings right. some diagrams, like the character quick pick or the hero's journey that requires 22 cards, or the train crash that's only eight cards, the film noir, that's only eight cards as well, but laid differently. Love Story, the action movie, The Crossroads. So there is a somewhere, Once Upon a Time. So shall we go for something simple? Um, I'm, I'm going for the all the things. And uh, go for the character quick pick. Sure, let's make it simple on the... Okay. The listener. This is only um, I'm shuffling. This is only uh, seven cards, so it should be quite simple. And the, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be drawing the cards and uh, telling you this card represents such thing. Okay. And let's see what we end up with. Okay. <laughs> All right. And I'm I'm going completely and utterly random here. I don't. I have no idea. Um, what's going to come out, but this should be super fun. I'm just shuffling cards like a madman. Okay, number one. Card number one is the character's base nature. There okay. is a, it's, um, it's called Alliance. There is strength in numbers, much comfort to the found in taking on a challenge, to, sorry, to be found, in taking on a challenge in concert with one's most trusted comrades. That's a lot of information. Yes. I don't know how the base nature comes into play there. Well, that's... When I think of base nature, I think of lust or greed. Well, 
but I think the base nature in here is teamwork. Okay. Okay. That that's teamwork. Trusting your mates. That's that's your nature. Okay. Number two, uh, the influence of the universe. Sometimes it's called in uh, the car, the card's called intuition. Sometimes mm -hmm. instinct is more accurate than deduction. Listening to hunches and feelings from the subconscious mind is important and more likely to pay off. Okay. That's the How many cards are we drawing? Uh, we're drawing seven cards. Oh, wow. That's a lot of data to remember. And this is a this. quick pick. <laughs> okay. I think this would be easier if I was looking at them laid down. Uh, well, I can send you photographs later if you want. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. Number three. His or her Achilles heel. So their Achilles here. The anti-hero. The protagonist may be someone whose goals and values are noble and good, but whose methods for achieving them are questionable. Okay, so that, that's that's a vulnerability. Number oh, okay. Okay, number four, the influence of family and or friends. Forces of influences are not in equilibrium. One element overpowers another, creating an unstable, chaotic or even dangerous situation. I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I was formulating an idea for a campaign where the characters are all really good cops mm -hmm. that work together and they use their hunches to solve crimes. And then there's a dirty cop somewhere that's their foil. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what to do now with that last bit of information. Well, there you go. Number five, the character's driving passion, harmony. Whether taking the form of the physical environment or the general populace, the forces of the external world are united in providing support. Yeah, that's still... The cop thing still works there. Yep. The character's destiny... Let's take another card from a different side. I'll pour part of the tarot deck. The deck? Not tarot, because not a tarot. So, uh, the character's destiny... Delusion. A lie to one's self, whether deliberate or involuntary, someone may be attempting to fool his or herself with their justifications and rationalizations, or by clinging to facts that are simply not true. Yeah. So somebody somebody on the cop squad draws conclusions very, very quickly and then tries to force those uh those conclusions, right? So you have somebody that might even plant evidence just to make make well, a case. The way I look at it is more that the character is linked to some sort of realization. There is an epiphany coming because right now you are deluded. So your destiny is either delusion or to, to continue with the delusion that you are believing something that's actually not true, but deep inside you know it's not true, or actually finding out and accepting that what you believe is not true. There are alternative facts. Last but not least, what stands between them and their destiny? Oh, the antagonist. Uh, this card may represent the antagonist literally or other external forces aligned against the good of the protagonist. So there's a dirty cop on the squad and they don't even know it yet? For example? Yeah, interesting. So that, that would be, um, you know, the character drawing us in seven... Seven cards. Interesting. And I, I, so you saw my tool cards, right? Yes. That I, yeah. So, yeah, you can do the same. It's very different 
in how the cards are presented, but you it's designed to do the same thing. You can do create an entire adventure for the evening out of drawing three cards. No, this this is um I mean this can be quite deep. And I, I did yeah, once yeah. um create a um what's it called? Uh, a plot for a novel in which somebody basically had to if I remember correctly, it was so long ago now and I didn't even write it down. But they basically had to they had been tasked with looking after death's son and they had to defend that song from death itself because death didn't want to have somebody who actually had control over life or death like it does. Right. So it was a very weird kind of adventure. So anyway, that's that would be a character. So I think generating characters this way, I don't know why we even started with this. I'm, I'm completely lost it here. We are so far off from where we started. I yeah. think we just talked about the idea of one of these days we should help people generate adventures for themselves with non-cliched adventures for themselves with some of our ideas. And then you said, oh, I've got the perfect deck for that. Yes, and I do. Look at that. I've proven it. But in seriousness, I think that um, getting out of your comfort zone and finding some sort of randomizing way of getting adventures or designing characters or whatever... It's uh, it's a fantastic way of adding depth to a game that you wouldn't expect to have, like you know, what we were saying D and D or Pathfinder. Well, I'm putting my money where my mouth is, and I actually just bought while you were talking. I just went online and bought that deck from his website. Still uh, on sale? Yeah, you can buy it through his website. They're twenty five bucks. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Because- I mean, well, I don't know how that's with shipping. I don't know how much they are. In Europe, but that's how much they are in the states. Well, I have no idea because I got it in um, in Kickstarter when it first came out, and yeah. I, I, I have never heard anything else from the company, so I didn't know if they were even alive. Yeah, yeah. The website is all QuickTime and hard to navigate, but uh, um, it was there, and I didn't even bother looking at the cards. I'm buying it on your recommendation. Well, uh, I hope that um, you enjoy them. I, I think they're worth having. So we'll see. Are there listeners? There will be a link in the show notes, just in case that you want to get it as well. Uh, and if the um, Storyforge people are listening, you're welcome. <laughs> if anybody is still listening, which I think we've lost everybody because we're this tangent. This is the worst tangent oh, we've ever done. Heavens, we are getting very good at doing things very bad, aren't we? Yeah. I, I do have a, a confession to make okay. um, that I wanted to talk about as our ending. So maybe we'll we'll sign off as soon as I'm done. I. I bought the new Blood Bowl. Okay, that's not. Or, a bad I don't thing. know if you play Blood Bowl or not. It's well, my second favorite board game of all time. Well, I, I have an issue with Blood Bowl, and it's the players. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've only well, played I... Blood Bowl once, and the asshole, the complete and utter asshole, I played with a very, very experienced player, yeah. relished the chance of beating me down to a pulp. Because I had no idea what I was doing or how to play the game. Yeah, it yeah. was like playing chess with that master and have that person gorging in the fact that, oh, look, I have won you because you are shit, because you've never played. <laughs> and that put me off. Isn't that all Games Workshop players? I don't want to say all. <laughs> there's, there's nobody left that we haven't attacked on the show, so let's go after Games Workshop players now. Well, I um, don't... I've encountered those players too, but I don't know that that's the majority of Blood Bowl. Well, I, that's the 
Blood Bowl players have found, so I'm not going to say it's all of them. Right. But the one we have found, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter if we say they're all of them or not, because at some point, some plunker is going to misinterpret whatever we say anyhow and take offense, and then the offense will extrapolate and, uh, you know, go on to everybody, and we will become assholes because we said something that they didn't understand. You bastard. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> uh, so I've been playing Blood Bowl since, I want to say, 93. I mean, I, I love it that much. I've been playing since second edition. And the the edition that is out now really isn't that different from the third edition. Um, they just cleaned up the rules a little bit. And they added a bunch of stuff in the box you don't need. But I went crazy. And because Games Workshop only has the Skaven out right now that you can buy, and it's $65 for plastic, Ouch. I went and bought some third-party miniatures. And I went overboard, and I spent way too much money. But... Um, I love I I like Blood Bowl so much I will set it up and I will play against myself. Wow. Yeah, that's how much I like Blood Bowl. You're really sad. <laughs> I am. I am sad. I think I don't think that that is news. So anyway, what what what's this got to do with anything? I just wanted that confession out there, and I thought that would be a great way to end one of our worst sessions ever. Mm. Okay. <laughs>